We'd like to thank our sponsors Westcott in association with JP Distribution for sponsorship of the He Shoots, He Draws podcast. Welcome to the He Shoots, He Draws podcast, the show about photography and design with your hosts, Glyn Dewis and Dave Clayton. Hello and welcome back to another episode of He Shoots, He Draws with myself, Glyn Dewis, and my ever-present co-host, the amazing Dave Clayton. Hello, mate. No, carry on, carry on. I need more superlatives for me. No, hello. How are you doing? <laughs> I actually thought you meant carry on because it wasn't working. What are you like? Anyway, listen, right, come on. It's uh, it's Friday, uh, which seems to have happened over the last few weeks. That Friday seems to be interview day. So we're going to keep with that this time because we've got a great interview that we had, a chat we had with our great friend of ours called Mark Heaps. Uh, I'm going to let you tell the folks more about Mark. But all I'm going to say is, you know that saying when you have jack of all trades, master of none? Mark's one of those guys that's kind of jack of all trades, master of all trades. He's a photographer, he's a designer, he's a musician. He just does everything and he does it really, really well. So Dave, I'm going to let you introduce this one because it's a cracking interview with a really great friend of ours. So Dave, over to you, mate. Yeah, for those of you who don't know Mark, I mean, we've met him through events when we've been at Photoshop World and Adobe Max, and I've learned from Mark over the years, and like, you know, luckily for us, he's become a friend. But as you just said about Master of uh, of All Trades, is what the episode is, is about is it didn't just happen to him. He had to work really hard to get here, and it's a really good story. And if you are, like with Ian Monroe's interview, um, and even with Joe's interview, there's a lot of things where when you're starting out and you want to build a career, there's a lot of stuff happens to us that we don't necessarily publish. And and we've all got a story, and we all get to where we are, and it's not just an easy ride. Uh, for, for the most part, you know, as Mark, there's some stuff that Mark car- covers in the interview that's really... Um, relevant so um without further ado i'm going to throw it back to you glenn with our regular intro yeah so uh, let's kick this off then and with the usual mark who are you uh nerd i guess i don't know you know i, I get asked this question a lot and i i've never been able to answer it well but a client recently uh answered it for me i said um you know i've worked with him for years it's an agency out of nashville and i said uh i keep getting asked this question how would you describe me maybe give me an answer and he surprised me. He actually said, you're a synergist. And I said, what's a synergist? And he goes, you're that guy that makes everything work. You need this person in the middle who connects all the all the dots, you know, and you, you make everything work. So whereas my career once started maybe as a graphic designer and photographer, you know, those are really tools in my toolbox. Um, Dave and I talked about this in New Orleans, but now I, I, I sort of go by this label of professional creative or, or you know, I guess to, to quote trailer, a synergist. But I, I, that's the joy of it now is just getting to be able to connect everything together and solve problems. Cool. All right. So, we, I mean, we both know there's – well, we all know that you guys seem to have so many kind of uh, thumbs in so many different pies. I mean, mm-hmm. I thought I squeezed a lot into 24 hours a day, so I don't know how, <laughs> I don't know how you do it. But I think um, – I think one of the things that me and Dave wanted to talk to you about, obviously we're all mates and I kind of, I think you and Dave have known each other longer than I've known you, uh, but we kind of got to know each other a little bit more over the last maybe 18 months, two years, something like that. But I know last year in particular was kind of a bit of an eye-opener for me uh, when we were at Adobe Max and me and you were sat, there was a group of us went out for, for dinner, as you know, and we kind of sat down and I had a really small bit of lobster. You um, did, gypped on the lobster. <laughs> that was a, that was, <laughs> a really small bit. That was bit. a shrimp's hand. <laughs> we had <laughs> <laughs> but we, we we got talking and I kind of got to know more about you and it kind of really brought it home to me that everybody's got a story do you know what I mean I think we, again we, before we kind of went on air I was talking to you saying that um so many times when you know you're doing presentations and you might have somebody in the audience will look at you and go it's all right for you you know here you are doing presentations there you are at home you've got a great wife you've got great kids everything seems to just work for you but everyone's got a story so and i know you have and this will probably end up this 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 episode will probably end up being episode one of so many <laughs> because i know there is so much to what's uh, what's going on with you but if i was to say to you getting a work-life balance mm. with all that you have going on and we talked to joe mcnally about this as well what's your take on that how how on earth with having so much going on do you get a work-life balance? Um, well, I'll probably first echo what I heard in the interview you guys did with Joe, which is um, at least if you're if you're planning on being somewhat domesticated and having a wife and a family and things like that, 
Uh, Dave spoke about it as well. I know you spoke about it. Um, but having a great partner, you know, certainly helps. I, I definitely wouldn't be where I'm at or, or have accomplished anything um, if I didn't have her patience and understanding. And I actually shared this um, at the last conference we were at where uh, for years I worked at an animation house and I actually did uh, character animation and the early flash days and, and traditional cell um, uh, animation. But I remember I worked on the graveyard shift at night and was working on this cartoon and my wife was then my girlfriend and she would literally show up um, at four o'clock in the morning before she would go to uni and she would actually bring me food and bring me breakfast because she says, you keep forgetting to eat. You're such a workaholic. And so she would bring and she would literally bring me a Tupperware, feed me this food and she would sleep under my desk while I'd work on renders. And then she'd get up in a couple hours later and she'd go to school and then I would go home and sleep for a couple hours and I'd go to my next job. So, um, that doesn't sound like I'm very good at work-life balance, does it? Um, but you know, what I learned first was how to be a workaholic. I learned how to work hard and then came the challenge of how do you balance it? And I've been asked that a few times and ultimately the conclusion I've arrived at now is, um, it's not the people talk about work-life balance. It's very trendy in Silicon Valley. When I was there, people talk about like, you've got to have this work life and then your personal life. And how do you balance between those two? And for people that are in this industry, you you live it. Um, you know, if you're a professional creative, whether you're a photographer like Joe McNally, or if you're a designer, speaker, actor extraordinaire, Dave Clayton, you know, you <laughs> you have to be able to blend all of this together. So for me, I stopped doing things that I don't love. That ultimately became the biggest part of it is um, I, I don't do anything now that I would absolutely hate. Like I don't I don't code websites anymore. I don't design that kind of stuff anymore for clients because I, I legitimately hate it and I never enjoyed it, but it was good money at the time, but I realized I was doing it for money. Um, I stopped working for clients that have products or services that I don't believe in. You know, I, I, I realized that if I choose to work on things that I love, then my life is filled with things that I love. And so my family, my personal life are people that I love. Um, my projects are things that I love. I love my clients. So to me, the work-life balancing is always aiming for things that I want to do and things that I can love because then it, it doesn't feel like I'm trying to wrestle it. All right. All right. So it, it sounds idyllic that yeah, you, know, you it, is. it sounds idyllic that you choose, you work and you only choose to work with the things that you love. Right. I mean, that that's the ultimate for everybody. But how on earth do you get to that stage? Because clearly, you know, you, there you are, say you're doing, doing your websites because you need money. You know, you've got commitments, you've got... No doubt, like everybody else in the world, you've got financial commitments. You've also totally. got a wife and kids and stuff like that. So how do you make that move from doing stuff that you need to do? Because that's generally bringing the money in to then saying, do you know what? I'm only going to do stuff that I love to do because that's what makes me happy. Yeah, and, and I don't want to paint some weird fake, uh, you know, rainbow bright gummy bear Disney movie about my <laughs> life. Look, I do projects for clients that maybe I don't like that project at that time, but I love that client. Or it, you know, or maybe there's an aspect of it. You know, I heard Joe's talk about personal projects, and I know you do personal projects as well. Um, sometimes I need to do those things to offset the things that I'm not enjoying as much. But what I learned uh, in sort of the rapid pace of back when I was working at Apple or or Google is, man, if you don't wake up every day and try to find something positive about what you're going to do that day, you're rapidly going to hate everything you do. So first, it was a chore of learning how to not hate everything. Um, if, if you, you know, I was I was a kid uh, in the UK, and a lot of my friends still tell me today, they said, man, you were, you were such an angry kid. You were an angry teenager. And now you seem like this really positive uh, person trying to help other people. Um, and I was, I was definitely an angry kid. And I realized that I had a tendency just to be negative. And so now it, it, it transcends into everything, work, marriage, relationships, friendships. You have to find something that you love about it to keep you motivated. Why am I doing this today? So even people that are doing jobs just for the money, maybe you're doing it because you love your family. Maybe you're doing it because you love your car, as material as that sounds. You know, I've got a friend that does a job he hates, but man, he loves his custom car. And that job enables him to be a part of the car community. And, and so it's that's the balance, right? Is what the give and takes that we have. Um, and sometimes that has to be shared with a family, but I really go into every job asking myself, what am I going to get to love about this? I, I just did a really boring job for, for a very big financial company in San Diego. You know, the first thought I had was I'm going to get to go stay with Alan Hess. 
and oh, hang yeah. out with him we and his lovely wife. We spoke to Alan about you being there, and he loved it, mate. He loved it. It was brilliant, you know, and I've known Alan for a couple of years, but I, I got to really know Alan, you know, while I was there, and we had some great talks. And so was that job the sexiest job in the world? No, it wasn't a bad job, um, but I had a lot of fun with the client, but I had a great opportunity to love that job because it gave me the opportunity to spend time with Alan. So I look at everything going, what do I get to love because of this? What do I get to love from this? And that allows me to, to really, um, I guess, sound idyllic. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's what enables, it enables me to keep doing this. I've been doing this for a long time. So, right, so, so you've been doing how how long? I mean, how old are you now, if you don't mind me asking? Uh, I'm in my 40s. I'm in my early 40s. And I actually got my first commercial gig with a British shipyard um, doing illustrations for them in the northwest of England. But my, my first commercial illustration gig, I was 14. And so 26, 27 years ago, um, I did. I started shooting for skateboard magazines and, and other publications with a film camera um, when I was 15. And I had a whole strategy back then as well. Like I knew I wasn't going to be um, uh, a great photographer. I knew I wasn't going to be a great designer. At least, you know, I, I believed I wasn't going to be great. And I was humbled by that. I was like, I'm going to have to do work. So I skateboarded in competitions, which allowed me to get on the platform of these contests to take photos that other photographers couldn't get. I, you know, I had a father that worked in the shipbuilding industry. He pulled strings to get me into places so I could take photos to do illustrations from for that client. Like, I mean, taking advantage of your your resources um, so that you can succeed is is a really big part of this role. So when I look back now, uh, Dave and I actually were having a, a conversation in New Orleans about looking back at old design work and going, oh, God, why is that still out there? They can't be still using that. And I, I had a client come in one night. Uh, I was working at a Kinko's, which is like an American um, copier company, right? Come in and do your photocopies. The guy came in really late and said, I have, a, I have a big opportunity to bid on a job tomorrow. And I don't have any business cards. I don't have a logo. I don't have anything. And I was the only guy in the store. And so I, his name was Wolf. And I quickly drew with a Sharpie, a really terrible, look like an ink blot of a wolf head. And it was like aggressive and an angry eye. Like, what the hell was I doing? I, like, was I listening <laughs> to Pantera that day? And I made this horrible thing. He was happy. And I, you know, gave him a free logo and we put some cards together and did it. Fast forward years later and I'm driving south from San Francisco and literally a fleet of vans passed me with this giant wolf head on the side of the vans. No way. And I went, oh my God, that's that's the thing that I made. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I look back and laugh at it now. I, I give the man all the free design services in the world if he'd let me change it. But, you know, when you've done this that long, um, you just sort of learn to, to move past that and say, well, what's the next thing I'm going to do and, and how do I love it? Talking about that is we, we the conversation we had was like that work that you don't put in your portfolio, but it's work you have to do, and and you and you, the good thing is is you forget a lot of those ones, and then it's those moments oh. where they come back and you see them and and you kind of oh man, they're still using it. <laughs> what was I thinking? Yeah, it's like that's no, I'm never going to admit to that one, but it's nice when you see the big right. clients, even if it's not a logo, but it's a piece of work you've done that you see it's being successful. It is nice to kind of doff your cap at it, like a little personal. Ah, I did that. Well, that removes that removes the ego, right? I mean, in our world, that logo I did for that electrical company, uh, I should I should be like that episode of Game of Thrones where I just walk through the town and people go shame, shame, <laughs> shame. Um, but you know, that guy loves it. He still loves it. He's put in all of his vans. All these he's hugely successful now. I mean, the guy literally has a fleet of like 20 vans or something. Huge electrical company in the Bay Area, massive commercial accounts. He could afford to change that at any time. And he hasn't. So I don't care, you know, I know you guys talked about awards and things like that in, in one of the episodes. I don't care what other designers or other photographers really think of my work. I care what my clients think of yeah, my work. Yeah. I, I'm not out there trying to impress other people that are my competition. I'm trying to have relationships with clients. Yeah, that's what I say to people is when they're designing or even photography is people get so hung up now on they have to create an amazing, like a number one single with every hit. It's like if they write an album, it has to be 11 number one singles. It doesn't. It has to be work you're happy with. And you have to please your client. Your client will pay you. You move on to the next project. You're not trying to enter the DNAD awards or the, you know, to get the yellow pencil or, or you know, 
yeah, go out yeah, yeah. And, and be, hey, that, look that, at me. That is so similar. I said something a while back now. You know, like uh, me being the photographer side of things here, people see you going out there, setting stuff up, loads of kit, lights, metering it, and all that kind of stuff. And I posted something going back maybe six weeks or so now saying, do you know what? Sometimes who gives a damn about the light? Meaning, <laughs> meaning just take the picture. You know, yeah. and I'm not saying if it's a client, just go and take the picture. But if you, if you're with friends, if you're with family, don't be worrying too much about the light. Just take the damn picture because that's a moment that's going to be lost. So you know, not every picture has to be an award-winning picture. Whatever that yeah, means. Yeah, I wish more people would embrace that in this field. And you know, it's funny. I, I, I'm almost like this. If you and Dave had a baby, and I'll leave that visual for a whoa, second. Whoa, 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 whoa. Um, you know, uh, listen, listen. We share a room. <laughs> By choice, by choice, <laughs> by, by choice, by choice. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I, I I am sort of this split of being the design world and being the photography world, right? And and I am on both sides. And I I see people all the time rent our studio, and they start running through the catalog of poses that they've memorized, and they've memorized these poses from Sue Bryce and Lindsay Adler and all these great photographers. And I think that's brilliant, so that you learn how to break those rules. Those are the foundations of things that work. But people get, well, this works. That's all I'm going to do. And to me, that's the difference between fast food and a great chef. You learn how to cook and then you adapt on it. And so I don't, I, I never go into an environment taking photos or portraits of, of people and say, right, if you guys could all put all your weight on your back leg, make sure you rotate your hip out and, and you can master all the light in the world. But if it looks like a catalog pose, then it looks like a catalog pose. Now, does the client like it? Probably. They're super happy. They're going to hang it in their office or their home and, and they're ecstatic. I just can't imagine taking, you know, I probably on average do a hundred portraits a year and I just can't imagine them all being similar like that. So I, I think I know what works, but I also have to have an engagement with the client so that it can be original. And, and in that same respect, uh, I have a design client right now. We just did all the branding for, and we, we went back and forth on designing their logo it's for a, a large restaurant here in Texas. And in the end, we went through rounds of designs and we, we ended up coming to the conclusion of, can we just have the chef write the name of the restaurant? Um, it needs to feel like them and, and their personality. And so we did. We literally had him write the word. The word is industry. And we had him write the name of the restaurant a hundred times. And I digitized that. And then I pulled the best letters from it. And I used that to form the logo. And now it's going to be a giant... 60 foot wide mural on the side wow. of the and building you've been, that's cool. and you've been working with because we're watching it on facebook where you've been documenting mm. documenting the process and you've been talking about you're going down to the restaurant you're looking at seeing other aspects of what they're doing as it comes along it's not just a hey i'll deliver a logo pay me move on you're in you, you can see you're invested in the project Oh, deeply, deeply invested in it. And I'm, I'm, I'm now actually serving as an interior designer on the restaurant too. So um, last week I was shopping and designing custom lighting fixtures for them. I'm working with the table designer. I'm helping them pick grout and tiles. I'm, I'm designing the signs that are going in the bathroom. There's an art installation at one end. So to me, this is, this is sort of indicative of, of what I am now. I'm, I'm doing photos for them. I'm, I'm retouching concepts that have to be shared with the architects. I'm also helping them pick out glasses and plates that follow their brand color, and I'm making signs. So it, it sounds like you're you're a big believer in actually getting whoever you're working with involved in the whole process. That's, that's what it sounds like to me because I know from the again from the photography side of it, I think so many people think there's the role of the photographer and there's the role of the model or the clients, and they, the model has to do what they do, the photographer has to come to the table with all the ideas. When really it's a a collaboration. Mark, huge collaboration. Mark, Mark is a he shoots, he draws. He's he's the perfect guest. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, listen. Backtracking, Mark. Backtracking. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you said the word workaholic. That you, uh, in your own words, became or learned to become a workaholic. What what can you what can you tell us about that and uh, and I kind of know what I want you to say in a way alluding to sure. because you know we talked about work life balance that's how we kick this off and then you mentioned workaholic what what can you what can you tell us about that so you know on on the idyllic side talking about you know if you love what you do you'll never work a day in your life part of the problem when you do love what you do is you become addicted to it it's it's a bit like um, a drug. Um, 
you know, I've been very transparent in the past uh, about growing up in in kind of an area where I didn't feel valued and I felt, uh, you know, a little estranged and stand out. It's a, it's a little weird being the American kid in a small town in England and, and standing out um, and, and, you know, understanding your self-worth was something that was a challenge for me. The reason I bring that up is when I started working and people said, I love your what you do. I love having you on my team. I love the work that you're producing. You suddenly almost feel euphoric in that appreciation. You almost feel addicted to people liking you. I, I think this is a little bit of the problem with social media now is people gather likes and they feel that that values them um, and they get addicted to sharing that content. For me, before social media, that led to me becoming a, a, a really bad workaholic. And, and when I say bad, I mean, I, I've been hospitalized multiple times for dehydration, exhaustion, forgetting to eat, um, forgetting to drink. Or if I do, I'm eating and drinking the wrong things. Uh, we had one job where I didn't sleep for four days because I, I just couldn't stop thinking about the project. Um, even when I started working remotely from home for an agency near San Francisco, at one point, my wife came to me and said, when was the last time you left the house? And I said, oh, probably five days. And we realized I hadn't even gone downstairs from my office in three days. I literally hadn't gone to my kitchen because I was so engrossed in the project that I just couldn't leave. And, you know, you guys talk about the process, the process for me. I mean, you know, we won't show video to anyone, but my, my office is covered in notes and concepts and sketches. And it's a it's a big creative dumping ground. And so I I, I did get to the point as a workaholic where I was abusing myself. Part of that also was paranoia. Um you know, when you work in Silicon Valley and you work at a place like Apple or you work at an agency, um, you are very, very aware that on any given moment, you are easily replaced. There's millions of people in that metro area. They're all talented and somebody wants your job. And so I constantly um, put myself under this pressure of be the best you can be. Um, I think uh, Mike Kubiesi and I had a conversation about this where, you know, he's in Hollywood and he's had this amazing long-standing career shooting for like NCIS and CIS and all these these TV shows. But he knows there's a kid around the corner with a camera that would take that job from him in a heartbeat. So he's always 10 minutes early. He's always got his stuff prepped. He's always ready. And I, I did the same thing. If, if an art director or creative director um, was working with me on a shoot, you know, I, I would stay an extra eight hours. I would go spend non-billable time to make sure that I'd done things that they didn't expect. And that probably helped my career a lot. I mean, I won't lie. There's a lot of people that hire me because they know I'll do those things. Um, but it really sacrificed my health a lot as well. I mean, at this point, I've had um, probably close to 11 surgeries. Um, you know, some of that relating to old sports injuries, but some of it was clearly part of my health. You know, I had part of my liver removed. I've had my gallbladder removed. Um, I've had to go in and have spinal work done because I sit at a computer for so long. You know, there's a lot of things that I've abused for the love of this career. And to me, that's the definition of, of being a workaholic. The, the work-life balance now is I chose to be a workaholic from home and I probably see my children and my wife more than any partner does if they have a normal quote, normal job. Um, I heard you guys talking about on, on the interview with Joe about traveling to conferences. You know, my kids go with me to a lot of these conferences and you know, I, I heard Dave jokey going, well, I want to go to Disney world, right? <laughs> uh, thankfully I, I, I hate Disney world, so I'm not going to go, but, um, my family do come with me to a lot of these events and I might only see them for an hour here and there, but I see them for an hour here or there. Now, that, that's what I think was really cool because I know that obviously the three of us were all out at um, Orlando very recently at Photoshop World. And I didn't know you'd done this, but Dave told me that you'd, um, in between classes, you found some time to get an Uber, I think it was, down to down to Disney and surprise your kids for a short while and then come back and carry on. I thought that was just such... That, that to me, because because again, we've all got our own story and stuff like that. I, I actually love hearing little things about parents and how good parents really should be. And I don't say this because you're a mate, but you, and we've spoken about this already before, that how I view you and I see you as a parent is, is just, it's the blueprint. It's just lovely to see it. It really is lovely to see it. So the fact that you did that, I thought that was just wonderful, mate. I really did think that was wonderful you did that. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. It's, you know, I am lucky to have a, a partner that uh, helps enable my craziness um, and allows me permission to be crazy. But um, I I definitely learned through through a variety of experiences. My, my father was a, a president and CEO of a company and, and traveled a lot. And, and, and I didn't get a lot of those experiences with him when I was younger. And so that set the blueprint for me of what do I want to be as a dad? Um, my wife and I lost our first child. That was a really hard thing to go through as well. And so when you go through those sort of experiences, you get a very clear focus on what matters. And my wife's even better at it than I am, to be honest with you. She has clients that are, you know, hours in the, in the agency, but she'll actually tell them she has, she has the, the courage to look at a client and go, yeah, I'm not going to have that to you by nine because I want to take my kid to the pool. Now, the workaholic in me would never do that. The workaholic in me would say, right, I'm going to make the kids wait. Let me finish this. And kids, we'll go to the pool tomorrow. And she doesn't. She will flat out tell a client, look, uh, can you give me till midnight? Because I really want to take my kids to the pool for an hour. And if not, I'm going to take my kids to the pool anyway. And so she doesn't, a lot of times she doesn't give them the choice. And you know what? They respect her for that. And so um, for me, any chance I've got to be a dad um, and intermix that is is awesome. So now my kids, they come to the studio. My daughter knows how to rig up lights. And and maybe, you know, I've had some parents tell me, oh, you're teaching them to be workaholics too. Maybe um, that's, you know, that's a, that's a valid potential criticism, but I'm, I'm also teaching them that I'm doing something that I love. Yeah. 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 But you, we also said when we were messaging the other day that um, what you're doing and the way you behave with your kids and the kind of example that you set is because you're wanting to be the dad that ultimately, you know, you would have wanted. And I know I've talked about sure. that with Dave, you know, the, how we all sort of have these kind of um, personal things within us that say, I didn't get that. This and, I, and I've got my own mind. I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I'm going to be with like this to my kids because this is how kids should be treated. And I just, I just think, you know, hats off to you. Christ, mate, I'm, I'm 47 this year and I, I would still struggle to watch In Pursuit of Happiness. With Will Smith, mm. I just, I just, mm-hmm. there's certain things that I can watch on TV that can set me off. It's almost like I'm just teetering there sometimes. You know what I mean? And I'm 47. Mm-hmm. Do you, I mean, <laughs> do, do you ever get? Does that ever go? Do you know what I mean? Does it ever go? I don't know. But um, yeah, I think I it's part of your personality. Going back to what you said, Mark, about people saying, "Oh, you're teaching your kids to be workaholics." I think you're not. What you're giving them is a good work ethic, and that's something that a lot of kids these days don't have. It's a very entitled. Um, generation Mm. where everything has to be instant and now and actually what you're teaching your kids is to get the thing to get the end result the thing you want to have is you've got to work and learn a skill or a craft to be able to you know get get this thing over here so you know my my girls you know I miss them when I go away but we teach them how to have respect you know have good manners uh, a good work ethic and that will follow through that will follow through into their adulthood yeah, you you hope for those sort of things, and you know, I, I I'll I'll also say that uh, trying to have a work life balance when you've got you know a family like this, um, I probably learn more from how I interact with my kids than I've ever learned in my career. I mean, legitimately working with my kids um, has taught me how to communicate better with my clients. It's taught me how to be more patient. It's taught me how to not make so many assumptions, um, not to be. Uh, so nervous that I'm going to get approval from the client. Maybe they just need a moment to figure their thing out. So it's it's one of those things that being with my kids has taught me a lot um, around communications and, and just patience and working together and collaborating. But your client won't call you a poo-poo head or smelly pants. <laughs> <laughs> some might some might so, um, i can think of a few <laughs> so speaking of learning then mark from what you were saying is like learning from your kids is obviously you know as we've got to know each other and you know and i've what you've taught me i've watched your classes i've seen you at max i've i've like seen your content and what you provide and it's inspiring for me because we're both in design we're both illustrator how how do you continue to to learn um in that process because obviously technology keeps changing and that can that can change the way you are with your customers your clients and how you work so how do you find that time to now continue to learn new things to add to your portfolio well uh i trade sleep a lot (laughs) (laughs) to make things fit in um anyone that knows me well will will tell you that i 
I probably don't sleep much more than four to five hours a night every night. Um, and I hear, I hear people go, Oh, I had a great sleep the other night. I slept 10 hours. I go, how'd you sleep 10 hours? I don't even know how you do that. Um, but you know, this sort of goes back to that idea of learning how to look at things differently, right? Um, having a perspective of like, how do I love this thing? Well, I am, I am probably one of the, the thirstiest and hungriest learners, um, that I, that I could ever be in myself. You know, I, I wasn't a good kid in school. I wasn't necessarily one of those guys that was like a great student. Um, but as I've matured, I'm always looking for things that I can learn. In fact, my wife and I have a thing this year where um, we set up a, a learner's date once a month as a couple. And so we've learned pyrography, which is how to actually burn wood and do designs in wood. We've learned, um, I've got my brush still from our, I'm holding up a brush, uh, from our ink brush lettering class. Um, we're constantly looking for things to learn. And I love to see something and not just, not just take it at face value anymore. You know, a lot of people look at something and go, Oh, that's lovely. That is, that's beautiful. I would, I would, I would really like that. And, and I look at it and go, that's lovely. How'd you do it? And then I, and then I sign up for a class or I go take it. I mean, I've in this last year, I've done, um, knife making classes. I've done, you know, this wood burning thing that I'm kind of obsessed with right now. Um, I go exploring on my motorcycle. I, I just, a big part I believe is we're all on borrowed time. You the one thing that we can't buy more of is time. And I'm, I'm terrified. I'm legitimately, it's my biggest phobia. I'm, I'm legitimately afraid of running out of time. And so I'm always wondering what else can I do? What else can I learn? Um, that's, that's a really big part of my motivation. So is it always relevant to my job? No, I'll probably never burn a piece of wood in my life, but it also inspired me to think about things differently. So I just make time for it. I guess it was a long-winded answer, but I just make time for it. But you, you, you teach a lot as well, don't you? I mean, that's how we've got to know each other. So yeah, I mean, yeah. You, I've seen you travel. Certainly this year, you've seemed to put a lot of miles or air miles onto that passport there. Because <laughs> I saw there was you, there was Jesus, Colin. Yeah. You're all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And I love traveling. Um, you know, I and I like to make an experience of the journey. I know a lot of people. You know, some of the Adobe evangelists and. Uh, some of these other sort of professional instructors, they fly into a city, they teach their four hours of, of classes and they're like, right, I'm out of here. And they go. And to me, travel is one of the greatest things anyone can do to grow as a person, to learn, um, to have these experiences. So very often I, I do say, well, how would I get there? You know, last year to Atlanta, we, we were at a conference and I rode my motorcycle from Texas to Atlanta. Um, I've done other events in New Mexico where I, I took a camper behind my truck and decided to camp near the actual conference rather than stay in a hotel. Um, but I do, I travel a lot. I teach a lot. And one of the best lessons I ever got was if you want to learn something, teach it. You'll actually learn more by repeating the knowledge and sharing it with others. And they'll teach you things in reflection, um, that really will help you have those perspectives for, for deeper understanding. And so um, I, I never meant to be a teacher. I never wanted to be a teacher. I never wanted to be an instructor. It was actually an accident that I became a teacher. Um, I taught at a college for a while, which was very much an accident. Um, but I love it now because it, it really does inspire more learning. And one of the things you just did at Creative Pro, which is like another layer of this, is you. so part of teaching is presenting. And then you're actually quite an expert in teaching presenting. <laughs> and you just you you just created a whole day at the Creative Pro conference called Click, which um, your wife did her first public speaking thing. You can talk about that. She did. Yeah, I was so, really proud of her. So yeah. where did that come from? That whole the like f thinking I need to also teach this new thing. Uh, you know, that was a weird one. Um, when I went to college in the UK, I studied fine art and design, but my minor was in theater studies, which was an accident in itself. I never wanted to study theater. I, I wanted to study English, um, but it, the classes were full and I needed to have so many units to be accepted to school. So I studied theater and that got me into performance. Um, I've always been a musician in bands and I've loved performance and getting out to Silicon Valley presentations are such a huge part of the business culture and communications culture there that you can't be in that world without working on presentations, whether they're your own or for other people. And that eventually led to me working at a design agency called Duarte, which is brilliant, brilliant people. Um, they really have driven 
that world and that industry to where it's at today. Um, but I remember starting there, getting to work on TED Talks and making graphics for Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth and all these things that were like, oh, this is a presentation. Like, I didn't think about it that way. I thought boring PowerPoint slides. And that exposed me to amazing individuals, thought leaders, executives. And I just kind of had a natural knack for it. I think that was a big part of the performance and the design world coming together. Um, and then I'd say about eight years ago, I really doubled down. It was like, okay, Guy Kawasaki, Gar Reynolds, Nancy Duarte, Seth Godin. I really studied and learned what they felt the best practices were. Um, and from that, I started working with clients on my own. And so, uh, yeah, now we have the Click Conference, which is amazing. We really didn't know if that was going to work. You, you know, I've said for about six years now, I want to put on a conference day that is specialized in presentation design, not storytelling and the, the side that other people are covering, the actual beauty of making great presentations, the craft of it. And we really, we joked and said, man, if, if 40 people show up, wouldn't that be good? And, you know, we ended up with around 110 to 150 people that hung out for every single speaker. And it, it really touched my heart because I felt like, oh, this is another community that I can be a part of that, that can teach and inspire me. Wow. So with, with all that going on then, I really don't know how you fit <laughs> I thought I was busy. How? Okay. All right. So here's, here's a question for you. So I actually do want to know the answer to this. How do you relax? What do you do to relax? Oh, man. Um, I don't relax well. <laughs> uh, I don't. I don't. I try. I really try. Um, you know, I, I have friends that will tell me about how they sat down the other night and they watched these two movies on Netflix. And I go, who watches two movies? How do you get time to watch two movies? You know, um, but I, this is going to sound completely idiotic. I force myself to relax. No, no, I, I get that. I totally get that. Because I, I sometimes, certainly with me and my wife, we have to put time in the diary to say, on that yeah. day, we're doing this. Because if you don't put it in the diary, it never happens. Because we right. do. It's the way we all are wired, isn't it? That we kind of, oh, I'll just do this. And before you know it, you take on something else and that day's gone. Yeah, it's, it, I, the, the joke now is that I, uh, you know, I have an Android wearable watch. And the joke is that like my watch will pop up with a calendar event that says relax now. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and I welcome my robot overlords, but you know, um, this also goes back to, I guess, what do you define as relaxing? You know, so for some of my friends, that's sitting on a beach and having a drink. And for my wife, she's a big uh, bookworm. She reads an unbelievable amount of books in a year. And every day I'll see her sitting down and reading for an hour or two. Um, for me, it's music. You know, my big relaxation, my big escape is music. Um, I, I play in a house band in Austin, which is weird. But, you know, I, I have a gazillion guitars in my house. I have a, a piano. I have a drum kit. And um, I have those things around me so that even in a moment where I'm, I'm really stressing out and I know I should relax in that moment, uh, you know, I can turn and grab one of these guitars that are behind me and strum for two minutes. And maybe I don't get to do the big four hours of relaxing that other people do, but I try to give myself those little mini vacations throughout the day. And that, and that helps, you know, that really balances it out. So music is my big relaxation. It's where I go to escape all this stuff. So yeah, obviously with you playing several instruments and it's like Scott Kelby, you know, he plays the drums, he plays keyboard, he plays bass, he plays uh, lead guitar, piano, everything. And you've kind of got the same sort of thing. I don't know whether it's just a, uh, like I say, people are born with a talent and some things they learn. But when you were going to get up and jam at the Photoshop World, uh, the party, they got all the instructors to get up and like just get up and jam. And you got up and played bass, which is not what I was expecting. I thought you'd be on drums or lead guitar. So you're, you're up there playing bass. You've got Sam Haddix absolutely ripping the blues out of a guitar. You've got Rick Salmon playing. You've got Rob Foldy up on drums. Frank Dorhoff is up on stage. How the hell do you learn all those instruments and fit in all this other stuff you've been talking about? I mean, I know obviously you're in your early 40s. You, it's stuff you learn over the years. But it's like to have the time to learn guitar, great. But all the other instruments, man alive. I wish I could just play the, the triangle in tune. You, you, you can really go off people, can't you? I know. You can really go off people. Where did it all go? To, so my question is, Mark, is where did it all go wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that, that there's a few forks in that road. Um, no, you know, I I did start playing, I guess, young. I mean, not 
not like some kids who start at like six or anything, but I, 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 I always make this joke. I lived in England and I lived in the Northwest of England and it rained a lot. And so I was, I'd sit in my room and play an instrument and, um, you know, then I'd trade with other kids like, Oh, you, you have a drum kit. Do you want my guitar for a month? And we'd trade and, and I would play their stuff. Um, and we'd swap, you know? And so, uh, I've just always maintained that. And then obviously once, once I got older and was, you know, making some money at different jobs, I, I'd buy stuff and, and, um, I like the community of it. I never had any grand illusions that I was going to be a rock star, but I love just like I do with the design world. I love my community. So I have people that I get together and jam with and we don't treat it very serious and formal. You know, we have a barbecue together and guys will bring guitars over and, and I'll have a drum or whatever. So to me, the, the fundamental knowledge is easy. It's, it's rhythm and it's, it's really just, can you, can you click on time? Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. It's just one of those things that has always made sense to me. I, I, I don't ever appreciate it. I, I guess as much as other people do, I was talking to Alan about this, um, cause he's obviously friends with, you know, quite a few, uh, accomplished musicians and, and being the amazing concert photographer he is, he's, he's obviously seen a gazillion amazing musicians. And, um, he was sort of saying to me too, he's like, man, it's, it's crazy how you can know all those instruments and, it just sort of always made sense. You know, I never took formal lessons, but the moment I started playing music, I just heard it and I just kind of knew it. And and I'm jealous of photographers who are like that. You know, there, there are photographers I've met who can walk into a room. One of my good friends, Mark Dawn, is a really great photographer. He can literally walk in a room and just looking at, tell you exactly what aperture he's going to use. He knows what's going to come out before he's ever touched a dial on the camera. He, he just, it's a God-given talent of his that he can see things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's amazing when people can just feel things, um, intuitively like that. All right. So getting to the meaty part of it, right? Uh-oh, uh-oh, the, uh-oh. The loves and the loathes, right? There's no, there's no escape in this one now. We ask, we ask everybody this and it can be anything, Mark. It can be anything. Two things. What do you love about either the industry, what you're doing or whatever? And what do you loathe? Okay, so first of all, let's kick off on a positive. What do you what do you love about the whole industry or whatever? What's the first thing that comes to mind? You think I love Glenn and Dave, industry. obviously, but outside of obviously that. Glenn and Dave. But coming secondary to that, yeah. what you- <laughs> well, I was gonna say, are you asking me to be that parent? Like, I love Dave, and then I love Glenn. Like, second to that, who's your favorite? I love no. you guys. Just say I yeah. love you guys. <laughs> that's really the main question. Who's I your favorite? I love both my children equally. <laughs> Who's your favourite? Oh, my God. That's the question you guys should ask everybody at the end. Who's your favourite Australian out of the both of us? <laughs> I love all you Kiwis from New Zealand. You're great. Um, no, now Colin Smith's going to be jealous. Um, no, you know, what do I love in this industry? Um, I'm never bored. I'm never, ever bored. This is the most exciting time I think it's ever been. And I say this every year. Every year when I think... What else could change? Something else does. I, if you'd have told me 10 years ago that we'd be having conversations about shooting with mobile technology, um, I'd have said, you're nuts. But 17 years ago, if you'd have told me I'd been shooting with a digital camera, I would have told you you're nuts. And so every year, it just it changes, right? I mean, I, I was really lucky in New Orleans that I got to go host Russell Brown from Adobe for that photo shoot. And you know, we organized the shoot with all these fire dancers and he showed up with two phones and there was no like, oh, I'm going to shoot with a DSLR. I mean, we were on top of an abandoned building. We're standing on a rooftop overlooking the Mississippi River in New Orleans with this amazing pair of fire dancers. And Russell hands me a, a Luma Cube and he's holding his phone. <laughs> and he got brilliant I've shots. I've seen them, mate. They're brilliant. Yeah. They were amazing. And, you know. And and he let me run with producing. And I was like, well, Russell, what if I put you over here? And what if I do this? And I got to really direct him. And then he was being the photographer instead of being the brilliant creative director he is. And uh, that's what I love about this field is you don't have to be pigeonholed into one thing. You know, it, it used to be that going back when I started, there's no way you could have been an illustrator and a photographer. That that was almost taboo, right? You You have to specialize in a trade. And if you were a jack of all trades or a man of many skills, then you were a master of none and your value was lessened. That's no longer the case. And anyone that that 
you know, wants to argue that with me, I'll buy you a drink and we'll, we'll gladly have that conversation. But I'm, I'm living proof as well as many of my friends, uh, you know, you guys included who your instructors, your photographers, your designers, your producers, your podcasters, your media experts. That's what's amazing about this field now. You know, like I can't imagine being a dentist and going every day and sitting in a chair and grinding people's teeth and like <laughs> what what has changed for those guys? And that's my ignorance. Maybe it's a really sexy career and there's a lot of things changing, but I know it's changing in this field and that that's really cool. All right, well, that's, uh, that's that's a pretty damn comprehensive answer. I like that. All right, then. So come on, then. <laughs> the even meatier bit. What do you loathe? And this isn't meant to be a negative in any way. This is actually, <laughs> it's kind of giving a negative with a positive kind of spin to it, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Constructive criticism. Thera- Constructive bit of, criticism. Bit of therapy. So what is it that you, and I say the word loathe, but what I really mean there is, what aren't you so keen on? What would you change? Whatever comes to mind about the industry. And there's this one guy over at Photoshop. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> there's this one instructor. No, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not really a, uh, a person that loathes much. I, I do get nervous though, you know, and maybe it's my age now, but I, I do worry about people that are seeking so much rapid acceptance and they're looking for rapid success stories. And, and I, I, you know, I, I've told this story before where I've, I've had this one young woman who made a comment to me at a conference during a Q and a, and she said, well, do you really, do you really consider yourself successful? And I think at that time I had like 600 plus followers on Instagram and she goes, do you really think you're successful with, with 600 people on Instagram? And I said, yeah, you know, I do because that's not what I use as a, as a measure of success. And I think the industry has gotten very disjointed into what success is. You know, if you want to use that term, I I still don't consider myself successful, um, I'm always working towards that goal, but I, I, I do kind of get nervous, I guess, loathe the idea that um, there's these check boxes that if you do this, you've made it because we're all friends, right? Where, you know, I've had breakfast many times with Joel Grimes and I love that man's work ethic. I love how he talks about his career and his work and his commitment to his family and, and his craft, how he's always creating. Um, and he'll tell you there's, there's, there's no shortcuts, you know, he he would tell uh, Scott Valentine and I a story about how he used to get up at the same time every week, grab his portfolio and go, you know, pound the concrete and knock on doors and get people to know who he is. And sometimes two, three years later, that would result in a job. Um, I think people are losing sense of that, that the level of commitment that you have to put in to accomplish something. So I... I, I do worry about that. I do loathe the idea that people think there's a, a quick fix. Um, and it, it, the greatest story I, I, I give all the time now is um, I just want to see Incredibles 2 with my kids. Good movie. Um, but in it, I, I stayed after and, and my daughter's like, why are we hanging out watching the credits? And I waited until the animator section came up and there was a name there. It was uh, Frank E. Abney third, And Frank was a student of mine nearly... 15 years ago um, who came to orientation and told me, you know, when I said, what do you want to do with your, with your life uh, at this college orientation? And he said, I want to either work for DreamWorks or Pixar. And here we are, you know, 15 years later and I'm watching this kid's credits in Incredibles 2 as an animator. And so to me, there are still people out there that are putting the work in and understanding the journey and the process but I do worry that this industry is painting a false idea of what it takes to be successful because I just need five really good paying clients. I don't need a hundred thousand followers yeah, online. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. And that's when, <laughs> when you get that thing of when people say, Oh, it's all right for you, you know, and, that, and, <laughs> and they don't, they, they, I mean, we've, we've had experience of it where people have seen a uh, kind of, like you say, success is probably not the right word for it, but they see progress and they see like like small success and like, oh you did this you talk there you did and they just blat- blatantly come up and go okay I want to do that thing how do I do it Glenn you've got a successful uh, email subscribe list so how do I get that you know it's taken Glenn three four years to build that up and people just want to walk up to you and say well it's all right for you you're doing it right give that information to me so I can get the success from it and it's back to that work ethic again is, you know, looking at... And it also, Dave, it also goes back to that whole thing of everybody's got a story. Just because we don't 
you know, that you don't, Mark doesn't, I don't, Alan doesn't, Joel doesn't. We don't all kind of blurt out, oh my God, look what I'm having to do with in my life. Yeah. We just right. get on with it. And because we don't kind of uh, blurt it out for everybody to know the ins and outs and hang our washing out for everyone to see, they then think, oh, it's all right for you. I'm not, it's not a sweeping statement, not everybody, but they, you know, it can cause that tendency for some people to think it's all right for you. Yeah, but yeah, we've all absolutely. got a story. Everybody's got a story. And, and and not being afraid, you know, one of the things that I, I see a lot is people are just nervous now to make mistakes. You know, they feel like they've got to be great out of the box. I bought this camera. I should be an amazing photographer. You know, I uh, I downloaded this template. I should be a great designer. Um, it, it, it's not, it, you know, there's, but how did, how did Glenn get an amazing mailing list? He probably made a lot of mistakes in the journey and he figured it out by learning, you know, um, we all make a ton of mistakes and, um, personal and professionally. And the best you can do is course correct from those. You know, I, I, I'm a big proponent for fail fast methodology, fail fast and course correct. And so more people should really be okay with making mistakes. And I don't like to use the term failure because that's a little harsh, but be willing to be wrong, be willing to be corrected by others, be willing to take criticism, um, humbly and and then just react to it and you'll you'll probably come out better than most of the people around you mm. yeah cool i'd agree with that now dave was there something you wanted mark to do in a minute before we say thank oh you very gosh much? yeah <laughs> i think listen before before you do I, i'm gonna say listen i'm gonna kind oh of uh, mark look i actually do i know at the start i said this probably end up being episode one of however many because there are so many other areas i'd like to talk to you about anyway from the things that we've spoken about when we've seen each other at events and so on and so forth. But I'm going to say thank you so much for being so damn honest, but that's just a Mark Heaps thing, I know. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And thanks for giving us the time, mate. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, no, I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, anytime I get to chat to you two, it's it's a gift, man. I, I love you guys and, and I love everything that you guys are doing with your career. And, uh, you know, hopefully we get to spend a little bit more time together in the coming years. Uh, I've just got this thing in my head, so I can't, I've got to get rid of it, that you said, if you and Dave have a baby. Yeah. I've just still got that in my head. <laughs> now now we need to Photoshop uh, you just me knows. on a baby's body. Uh, <laughs> you just know that, so that picture is going to arrive somewhere, isn't it? That picture is going to appear somewhere. Um, <laughs> Dave, I'm going to hand over yeah, to you. So man. obviously going back to the time we have spent together, and, and like Glenn said, there's a ton of stuff about you that is still like incredible to hear. But one of the things that you, on the last day we were at Creative Pro and you just pulled out of nowhere was you started beatboxing and I'm pretty good as well. So for our first episode where we, we're actually going to leave with music, we're going to leave with a tune. I would like oh you to just give us a few seconds of your oh finest beatboxing. Oh my gosh. I I don't know how to even pull that out of thin air, but there's, uh, oh my God, you can do that. In the, you know, it's Dave and Glenn. <laughs> That'll do. Oh, heaps. You are a super, super guy. Uh, proud to have you as a friend. Yeah, same Thank here. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. And uh, I look forward to seeing you again soon. Sorry. So, strumming. We'll have to cut this bit out, but strumming for two minutes Uh is also like slang family. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I definitely got to cut that out. (laughs) See, I heard it. This is what Dave. This is what Dave heard. Dave goes. So he plays with his instrument for two minutes. <laughs> I looked across at Dave's face and he was trying not to laugh, and it made me laugh. Oh man! He was like very, very serious, yeah, very serious moment. Hold it, he did that hold thing. It. He does. He does the thing where he tilts his head like that. <laughs> He's like, "Tell me more, sir." Mm. Two minutes, you show off. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>